and there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What's God doing here? First, day one, there is, is the Israelites and the Philistines. They go off to war, and 4,000 men of the Israelites die. Now, it's interesting. If you look at verse 3, the Israelites understood what was going on. They said this. They understood that God was sovereign. It says, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They understood that this was the hand of God. And so they said, here's our solution. Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant. Now, clearly there was precedence for this. If you remember, as they were, after they had traveled 40 years in the wilderness, as they're about to go across the Jordan River, those priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, as soon as they stepped foot into the river, what happened? The river parted, and all of the Israelites walked through. Or right after that, if you remember the story of Jericho, the Battle of Jericho, what sometimes is missed is, you know, they walked around the city day after day after day, and then at the final day it all fell to the, to the ground. Well, what's said in there is the Ark of the Covenant went with them. So there was clearly precedence that the Ark of the Covenant was seen to have power. But not only that, in verse 8, they also realized, the Philistines also realized, this God that accompanied the Ark of the Covenant also had power. It said this, What does this mean? For the Israelites were afraid. A God has come into the camp. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from these gods, these mighty gods? These are the gods that struck the Egyptians from every sort of plague in the wilderness. So what comes into... They, they, they realized that the ark was the visible sign of the presence and the power of God. And there's this mighty shout, right? I just I was reminded maybe of... Maybe if you played sports before in pregame, you know, there's kind of this psychological warfare that goes on. You know, there's the shouting and screaming, and you're kind of sizing up the enemy. There's this great shout... And the Philistines are terrified. But what happens? The Ark of the Covenant is taken. But not only that, if the first day was defeat of 4,000, the second day was utter destruction. 30,000 foot soldiers. This Ark that was once undefeated, right, had this great power. Verse 11 says, The Ark of the God was captured. And then the rest of the chapter, we see that Eli, he was 98, he was blind and heavy. It says he was told, and he fell over backwards and dies. So the hits just keep on coming. Eli dies. Not only that, but Phineas's wife, she hears that her, her husband dies. She also dies, and she says, the glory has departed from Israel. So what is going on here? Why did God cause 4,000 men to die, then 30,000 men? Why did God allow the ark to be taken? There's an uncomfortable answer. It's really, really clear. If you look back in the previous two chapters, we'll see this. Follow with me. Go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, starting in verse 12, says this. It talks about Eli's sons. They were worthless. 
it's quite a description. They were worthless. They were supposed to take, they were supposed, when people offered, gave offerings, they were supposed to take the boiled meat. After it had been boiled in the cauldron, after the fat had been burned off, then they were supposed to take the offerings. But what they did is they said this in verse 17, or verse 16 to those people. They said, no, you must give it now, for if not, I will take it by force. And thus, in verse 17, thus the sin of these young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For these men treated the offering with the Lord with contempt. If you skip down a couple more verses, it says this in verse 22. They were laying with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So there's, there's these women that are serving at the tent of meeting. They're having relations with them. Clearly, this did not go over well. And Samuel or, sorry, the Lord is speaking to Eli, uh, to Eli, and he says this in verse 25. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And in verse 34, he says this. And it shall, thus that shall come upon you that your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Then if it wasn't clear enough, there's a man or a boy who comes into the temple. His name was Samuel. How many of you kids remember Samuel, the call of Samuel? Any of you kids? A couple of you kids remember the call of Samuel? Many kids remember the story of Samuel, and this is always humorous to me because whenever there's these kids' stories, there's all, you, in every kid's story or Bible, children's Bible story, there's always the talk of, the, of Samuel being called, but they never quite go into description of what he says to Samuel. He says this, um, if you go into verse 3, <clears throat> he says, um, he calls him three times. And he says in verse 13, he confirms what he said to Eli. He said, and I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. This is Eli's house. For the iniquity that he knew because his sins were blaspheming God. And he did not restrain them. And in verse 14, therefore I swear by the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by the sacrifice of, or offering forever. So why did God destroy the Israelites? Partly it was their sin, but I think there was a bigger picture. It was to fulfill the command, or the, the, his prophecy, that he was going to destroy Hophni and Phinehas on that day. He said it to Eli. He promised it. He confirmed it with Samuel. And so he fulfilled it. Now that's an uncomfortable realization to many of us. Or maybe in 2 Samuel, it talks about... Bathsheba and David. And in 2 Samuel 12, 15, after Nathan prophesied to, to David, it says this, The Lord afflicted the child of Uriah's wife, bore to David, and he became sick. So that child was afflicted by the Lord, and ultimately died. But later in that same chapter, it says, And David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. How is it the Lord afflicts one son and loves this other son? 
As many of you know, in Romans 9.13, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. What's God doing? Well, partly some of it is to judge sins. But what's he doing when he brings hardships and trials? The afflictive providence of God. Some people, they just say, oh, God's not really like that, right? They try to rationalize what God's really like. God's just a God of love. We don't want to focus on this God of judgment. Or some of people just say, I don't think I want a God like that. Um, Many of you know Aaron Rodgers, the Packers quarterback. He had a podcast with Danica Patrick. He said basically the same thing. I think he grew up in a somewhat Christian home. He says this, I don't know how you can believe in a God who wants to condemn most of the planet to a fiery hell. What type of loving, sensitive, omnipresent, omnipotent being wants to condemn his beautiful creation to a fiery hell at the end of all this? He sees what's happening here. He sees this and he's like, I don't know that I want a God like that. How do you answer that? Well, I think the most compelling, there's a lot of answers to why God brings hardship, why God brings judgment. But I think the most compelling answer is in this. And the easiest answer, spoken of in Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, being God, Jesus Christ. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. See, the most unjust, the most thing, the biggest thing that didn't make sense in all of the world is the judgment that God had on Jesus Christ for, the, for your sin and mine. If you can't understand his love, then you can't understand his justice. If you can't understand his mercy, you can't understand sin. But there's another lesson here, I think. There's another lesson, and that's, not only is God sovereign over all things, but he's sovereign in our attempt to manipulate him. See, God is not a genie in a bottle. God, we can't just say, uh, you know, he's not a, a rabbit's foot. He's not this special caricature of us. We can't just bring the Ark of the Covenant and say, uh, you know, God, do this for us. We need to be very careful to presume upon the ways of God. John Flavel said this in, uh, in his book. He said this, Do not pry too curiously into the secrets of providence, nor allow your shallow reason arrogantly to judge and censure its designs. See, I think many of us, we want to say, Well, I think God was doing this in this situation. Because God wants people to be saved, therefore he needs to do this. Or because God, we know that God wants to judge sin, therefore he should do this. I think we need to be very careful. Not be like those Israelites that said, hey, why did we lose? Why did we lose 4,000 men? We just need to bring the Ark of the Covenant, our good luck charm, and then all will be well. If you think you know why this or that happened, I think this is a cautionary tale cautionary text to not presume upon the wisdom and the providence of God. All right, so that's part one. But part two, what happens? Starting in verse five, or chapter five, verse one, says this. 
When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it to Ebenezer and Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set up, it, it set it beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who entered the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. So I think we see the second lesson here is pretty clear. God is sovereign over the rule of other gods. See, the Israelites thought that their victory was because of their god Dagon. They had no idea that God was doing far more in their, in their victory. It was, god was doing so much more through this battle. I think it's also interesting. I don't think it's by mistake. We see that he's taking progressive steps. Right? Day one, it's just... Dagon is face down. But what happens day two? Day two is he's face down, his head's chopped off, his arms are gone. And if you realize it's, this is deliberate vandalism, this is very intentional. The hands and the head are on the threshold. They're moved. It's not like they, he just fell over and parts of him broke. He fell over and they're, they're moved to another part of the threshold. You know, um, part of it, if you ever look at pictures of Dagon, you know, I, I think it's kind of the Philistines' own fault. They should have chosen a better god. I mean, uh, he was, Dagon was half man and his lower half was fish. And so, you know, fish isn't very stable. On, out of, he's like a fish out of water. I came with that one myself. <clears throat> um, but, um, so, but I think there's a lesson here to us. Not only is he sovereign over other gods, but I think it was helpful. I've been reading uh, G.K. Beale's book, We Become What We Worship. And clearly, we don't worship gods that are like Dagon here. But he accurately, I think, shows what it is that people worship here in 2020. And his, his big premise is, the, a biblical theology of idolatry, and he says, what people revere, they resemble, even f- either for ruin or restoration. So whether it's in their character or their end result. For instance, God says over and over and over, he says, you have eyes, but you do not see. Ears, but you do not hear. What's he doing? He's comparing them to their, their idols. He's saying, you're just like your idol and your character. The, your idols are just wooden. They don't have, they have ears, but they don't hear. Your God, Dagon, he has hands, but he can't do anything with them. He can't think. I'm going to cut it off. Or your end result. He says many times, he said, your, your, your uh, idols are going to go up in flames. Just like you if you don't turn and repent. And so he says, so what G.K. Beale says is over and over and over in the, in the Bible. What people reveal, revere, they resemble. Either for ruin or restoration. And he identifies two gods of this age. And he likens them not to the gods of out here. But he says the gods within the church. One 
is a love of self. We even have a term for it nowadays, don't we? We call it self-care or self-love. But he says this. We too often think that our life, that this life is our life. That, that we discover our gifts for our career, for our family, and so on. We see this great deal even in we see this a great deal even in Christian communities, where people are so concerned with what they do for God. Eugene Peterson develops this mentality aptly. Do we realize how almost exactly the Baal culture in Canaan is represented, is reproduced in the American church culture? Baal religion is about what makes you feel good. Baal worship is a total immersion in what I can get out of it. And of course, it is incredibly successful. Baal priests could gather crowds that outnumbered followers in Yahweh, 20 to 1. There was sex, there was excitement, there was music, there was ecstasy, there was dance. We got girls over here, friends. We got statues, girls, and festivals. This was great stuff. And what did the Hebrews have to offer? The word? What's the word? Well, Hebrews had festivals, at least. It's a big word we have. Salvation, being saved. We are saved from the way of life in which there is no resurrection. And we are being saved from ourselves. One way to define spiritual life is to get so tired and so fed up with yourself that you go on to something better, which is following Jesus. By the minute we start advertising the faith in terms of benefits, we're just exacerbating the self-problem. With Christ, you're better, stronger, more likable. You enjoy some ecstasy, but it's more self Instead, we want to get people bored with themselves so they can start looking at Jesus. So that's one way I think he's, he's incredibly perceptive at the desires of self and the glorification of self. But he has another one. The worship of media. He says this, the second one being media. In the absence of God in mainstream media should alert us to the fact that we are when we uncritically leave ourselves open to this perspective of the media's worldview, then slowly but surely, it leads us to cease thinking of the things of the Lord in the details of our everyday life. In this worldview, God is not active in the special, specific affairs of the world or in our individual lives. And we, when we imbibe this worldview uncritically, it makes us feel a little bit abnormal a little bit unnatural in relating to God and being sensitive to his sovereign activity in our life. We may even feel awkward mentioning this to anyone, whatever to believe, whether to believers or unbelievers. I dare say that many Christians have been more influenced by the media than they would admit. The media's worldview has subtly, subtly become an idol we so easily reflect. And that mindset that God is not active in the daily affairs of people can destroy us. What we revere, we resemble, either to our ruin or restoration. I think that's incredibly perceptive. My question to you is, if you are, if you see things in the media, do you get excited or amped up because that's what they're excited about? Or because it's true and right and just? Or if you get so frustrated and mad, is it because that's just the way the media is mad and upset or because it's counter to what is true and right and just. An example of this 
<clears throat> a couple months ago, I was, uh, many of you know I was working on a house. I was trying to uh, fix a house to resell it. And I went that day, and I had all these burdens, all these cares, all these concerns, thinking of, this was right at the height of, of COVID when it came out. And I was trying, we were just, just burdened about the, the direction of Rock Valley Bible Church. Many of the concerns of Rock Valley Bible Church, there were concerns at home. And then I go to this, this house, and <laughs> nothing went right that day. It was like I would take a measurement, and three plus three equaled seven. You know, it was, I, things broke. It was just everything that could have gone wrong went wrong that day. And I left that house thinking at the end of the day that I had literally gotten less done than when I, like, I was farther behind that than sp- after I spent eight hours. So I drove home, and I had um, a countertop. I brought it here, a portion of it. You'll see why. So I had the countertop in the back. I had just finished it. It was only laminate, you know, but I had cut out the hole for the sink. I had finished the edges. It was all done. And I had it in the back of my truck. And I put it on the side, on the fenders, kind of. And I knew I shouldn't have, but I turned and I walked away. And all of a sudden, you know what happens, right? It falls, falls off. I hear a crash. And I look, and it's been two big pieces. And one of the pieces was about this size. And um, my inclination, my first inclination was this. My first inclination was to grab it. I was like, this would be a great discus throw, right? I could just, you know, just, I just wanted to toss that as far as I could. But what I did, what I did next was, was not that. I started laughing. (laughs) And I, I laughed. And I said, Lord, I thank you that you are in control of all things. And even in situations and days and in the burdens like this that I can trust you. Now, listen, I'm not a superhuman, that, the super spiritual person that does this naturally. In fact, if I hadn't done what I did all day, I would have been prone to worship the God of money, and I would have thought how much I, and time and money I spent on that. But what I had done all day was I had been listening to some messages. I had listened to John Piper um, talk about coronavirus and Christ, the book. I had listened to some messages about how God is working in our lives, even in difficult times. And that had been going through my mind, even in all this difficulty. And so you see what happened is, at the end of the day, when that happened, was just the, the pinnacle. I was able to say that because I was becoming what I worshipped either for restoration or destruction. And because I had filled my mind and I had thought and I had been considering the goodness of God, and that was becoming my God, God was becoming my God in these situations, I was able to laugh instead of worship the God of money. All right, well, last, a very appropriate ending says this in verse 6. We see God is sovereign over other things. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them. 
with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the, of the God of Israel? And they answered, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God So they brought the ark of, of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of, Israel, of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that t- tumors broke out on them. So, he, so he, they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. And they sent therefore Philist- and gathered Philistines and all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of God of Israel and let it return to its own place, for it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly panic throughout the whole city, and the hand of God was very, was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were struck, were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. You see what's happening here. What you revere, you resemble, either to your to restoration or to your ruin. He's doing the same thing here. First, the Ark of the Covenant comes to the city of um, to Ashdod, and what happens? The men are struck with tumors. And so the, we see that this whole, this whole phase took about seven months in chapter 6. So first there's these people in Ashdod and they're struck with tumors. So they say, let's send the ark of, of God away. Let's send it to, to, um, to Gath. Well, what happens, he does the same thing but kind of amps it up. It says not simply the men, but men young and old this time. So they, they, after a while, they've had enough as well. And so... What happens? They send it, hey, let's send it to Gath, or to Ekron. God amps it up again. And it says, there is a deadly panic. So the question, now look at verse 7, though, first. Look at verse 7. When it first comes to Ashdod, and when the people, men of Ashdod, saw how things were, they said, the ark of God must not remain with us, for the hand is hard against us and against our God, Dagon. Against Dagon, our God. See, God is sovereign over his enemies. He's sovereign over your gods. The question is, what is your reaction? For them, they said, hey, this God is really heavy against us. Let's send him away. How many times do we do that? We see God fight and behead our gods, take their hands off. And we say, instead, let's send God away. We want our God. What do you do when he brings hardship in your life? Do you turn away from your trust in health or money or family or politics? Or do you run to him? And verse 11. So in verse 11, when it comes to Ekron, he amps it up a little bit more. They could see the art coming. They're like, we know what this means. It means disease. It was visible. In verse 
verse 8, they said, we know that this is the God who, who struck uh, Israel with, or the, the Egyptians with plagues. Many, theo, uh, many theological commentaries say that um, what he did was, each one of the plagues was a successive uh, hit against all the gods of the gods of Egypt. So there was a strike against this god, a strike against this god with the frogs, a strike against this god with the gnats, until finally he just continued to raise the ante, raise the ante until he took the firstborn. Once again here, there's this deadly panic, a panic that causes death. And those who didn't die from this deadly panic were struck by tumors again. Well, I think the, the lesson here is pretty clear, especially, inappropriate, especially appropriate for us in today's day. God is sovereign over disease and even pandemics. You know, if God wanted to, he could, wait, he could make the coronavirus disappear. He could make it go away tomorrow. He could have stopped it when there were 70, 80 people infected. But he chose not to. What is God doing? Again, I've referenced this one once, but uh, John Piper, he has a book, Coronavirus in Christ. A very helpful book. I would recommend it to you. He gives six answers, six potential answers to what God is doing in our day. But answer number one, I'll just read one that further illuminates the stories that we've heard. Answer number one, God is giving the world in the coronavirus outbreak, as in all other calamities, a physical picture of the moral horror and spiritual ugliness of God belittling sin. Then he asks a question, key question, Now here is the question that brings the meaning of the coronavirus into sharper focus. Why did God bring physical judgment on the world for a moral evil? Here's his answer. Here's my suggestion. God put the physical world under a curse so that the physical horrors we see around us in diseases and calamities would become a vivid picture of how horrible sin is. In other words, physical evil is a parable, a drama, a signpost, pointing to the moral outrage of rebellion against God. Don't we see that in Dagon, in the Ark of the Covenant, worshiping the Ark of the Covenant? Here's this physical signpost, drama, a parable. He also has answer number five. For those of us who deal with self-love, the worship of self, answer number five, the coronavirus is God's call to his people to overcome self-pity and fear, and with courageous joy to do good works of love that glorify God. What is God doing in the coronavirus? There's two possible answers. I would commend that book to you for further, um, further thoughts. But then just to finish up here, God is sovereign. And so in chapter 6, they bring... The Philistines are, have had enough of the Ark of the Covenant. They're done. <laughs> They're like, we give up. But maybe, hey, maybe it wasn't really, this wasn't really the hand of God. Maybe it was just coincidence. Maybe the people who brought the Ark from city to city, maybe they had uh, the tumors. And so maybe they just kind of transferred it. They didn't social distance when they did the transfer. And so maybe it's, this wasn't really God. And so they said, let's do this. So they bring the, um, in verse, in verse uh, 5, it says, chapter 6, verse 5, 
says this. So we must make images of your tumors and images of the mice that ravage the land and give glory to God and Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you and from your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? And did, not, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart with two milk cows on which has never, never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart and take their calves home away from them and take the ark from the... And Take the ark of the Lord and place it on the ark and put in a box and at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to them as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes on in the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this, us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It has happened to us by coincidence. So they did it. And so the men did so. And they took the two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the messages or the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the Lord of the Philistines went with after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Well, God makes it very clear, doesn't he? He's sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over nature. He's sovereign over animals. There's this science experiment that's set up. There's three factors. He says here, the, the, the diviners and the priests say, okay, take two, two cows, two milk cows, set their, set their, uh, their, their young Lock them up away. Put them on a yoke. They've never been yoked together. There's no reason that they would be able to pull in the same direction or very well. They would immediately want to go back to their, to their, their calves. And not only that, but Israel's uphill from where they were at, from Ekron. There's no reason for them to go up to Beth Shemesh. There's three factors. There's no natural explanation for why they would do what they want to do. What happens? They go straight in the direction to Beth Shemesh. Showing God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over animals. He's sovereign over nature. And he's sovereign to reveal himself again. It was interesting. It says the cows are lowing. You know, I I like how R.C. Sproul, when I was listening to him talk about this, he says, you know, I always used to think you hear the the way in the manger, the cattle are lowing. I thought they would kind of be all at peace. Everything's okay. But he said, no, what's happening is these cattle, they, they want to go back home. They want to not be yoked. But they're lowing. They know that against their will almost, they're being driven to Beth Shemesh. They're lowing, saying, I really want to go this direction, but I'm going this way. Cattle are lowing against their will. But God's returning to his people. In the form of the Ark of the Covenant. He will not that let them be alone. God is a God of providence. He's working all things for the, his good and our glory. You see, we are so arrogant to think that God is totally sovereign in the past. And he will order things in the future with his good plan. But we wring our hands and we think, oh God, 
Where is God now? What is God doing? He's not at work. You know, these missionary stories that I started with at the beginning. William Carey, after he went through and he saw the, the wreckage of that fire, he said this, The loss is heavy, but as traveling a road the second time is usually done with greater ease and certainty than the first time. I trust the work will lose nothing of real value. In fact, the catastrophe proved something of a blessing. As the news spread, contributions poured in. Helpers rallied to Carrie's side, restoring what was lost and much more. Before Carrie's death in 1834, the mission had printed and distributed all or part of the Bible in 44 languages and dialects. What's God doing? He's sending out his word in 44 different dialects. Or Tyndale, instead of giving up when he saw the manuscript sink to the ground, to the, in the ocean, it only increased his resolve. So he said, the plowboy will still know more of the scripture than the priests in the Church of England. What does it mean that God's in control of all things? Well, again, I go back to the Heidelberg Catechism, question 28, and God's providence. What advantage is it to us to know that God has created and by his providence does uphold all things? And the answer is this, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, that nothing shall separate us from his love, since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. See, God's greatest act of providence was at the perfect time bringing about the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His call is to repent of sin, repent of the idols of your life, repent and turn to him. See, the glory of God departed in the person, or in the Ark of the Covenant, but it came back. But in Jesus Christ, Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. The glory of God dwells in the real person of Jesus Christ. And because of the cross, believers have the Holy Spirit that will never leave us, never forsake us. And we can trust in the providence of God that he is working all things. That's why we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper now. Let me pray. We'll do that. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of providence that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things, that we may place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father. Nothing will separate us from your love, and we, without your will, cannot so much as move. We thank you. We rest in this. May you help us to turn from our idols and turn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As we transition to the Lord's Supper, I want to read in Luke 22. I think all of you, if not, uh, there's some out, out there. As we reflect the Lord's Supper, he's in the upper room, and he institutes the Lord's Supper. Luke 22, verse 14, he says this, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, 
and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Kind of like us, we haven't done this for a long time. I trust that you earnestly desire to to, uh, partake in this. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of of heaven. So let's do that. Let's uh, peel the top and let's partake and let's do this in remembrance of him.